Uh, this term in our home groups, we've been looking at our church vision. Uh, I hope it's not completely foreign to you. Uh, this is it, a church through which God is transforming his people and his world. A vision is who we want to be. A vision is our preferred future. Uh, before we think about the vision, though, perhaps it's worth wondering, why have a vision at all? Uh, some people are not too sure about this idea of a church vision. Uh, perhaps they see it as, uh, as corporate, something that big businesses do because a consultant recommended it. Uh, they think that as a church, as volunteers, we should be more natural and organic and less managerial, less organised. But my view is that if businesses go to the trouble of being organised just to make money, how much more important is it for us to get organised for the sake of God's glory and people's salvation? That's a much more important goal, a much better reason to be focused and organised. Some other Christians I hear have a, a bit of a theological objection to a vision statement. Uh, they say it's arrogant uh, we don't know what God is going to do. He's in charge. We shouldn't presume. We shouldn't make plans or set an agenda. God is in charge. He will build his church. Setting a vision is, is doubting God or, or trying to do his job for him. That's what people, some people say. But I think that's misunderstanding the way God builds his church. Uh, God actually uses us to build his church. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says... He planted the seed, Apollos watered it, and God made it grow. Uh, in verse 9, he said that we are God's fellow workers or co-workers. The fact that God is sovereign, that, that, that God is powerfully at work, it doesn't stop us from working. It should actually energise and motivate us to work, to join with God in doing the things that he's doing. Uh, listen to what Paul says uh, in Philippians 2, he says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who, is it at, uh, who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfil his good purpose. Uh, we are to work hard, which means we're to plan and train and research and prepare and, and even humbly set targets because God is working in us and through us. Uh, so why have a vision statement? Well, basically it's so that you know what you're trying to do, that you know what you're trying to achieve. Uh, there's a saying that says, if you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. I think that's true. If you want to know where to go, uh, if you know where you want to go, you're more likely to be able to get there you'll be more effective at achieving that. Uh, you'll, be, you'll be better able to plan and make decisions, uh, not just decisions about what you should do, but also decisions about what you shouldn't be doing, uh, the sorts of things that might distract you or stop you from doing the best things, the things that will actually help you hit your target, whatever that target is. Now, just in case you're thinking it's not biblical to have a vision... Uh, consider a few examples. Uh, I reckon uh, God has a vision, uh, his plan, his preferred future. Uh, from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, we, we actually read it this morning, his will is that when the times will have reached their fulfilment, so that's at the end, 
It's in the future. His, his vision is that uh, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Uh, that's the goal God's working towards. Uh, throughout the whole of human history is that everything will be united with Jesus ruling over it all. That's a pretty uh, exciting vision, I think. Uh, or what about Jesus? Uh, how's this for a vision statement of Jesus? Uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Uh, or here's another one. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. Maybe that's a purpose statement, maybe it's a vision, they're pretty similar. So his vision, his purpose or his goal was to see lost people saved, uh, living life to the full. Or what about the Apostle Paul? Uh, Listen to Paul's vision, but also how having a vision influenced how he did things and what he did. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29, Paul says, We proclaim him, that's Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labour, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. So what's his vision? It's that everyone be presented perfect or mature in Jesus. And he actually works to achieve that vision with this particular strategy, which is to proclaim Jesus, admonishing and teaching people. That's his strategy for achieving that, uh, that vision at the end. Uh, that vision, I think, affects how he does those things as well. It, it inspires and motivates him. He labours, he struggles with all the energy that God gives him because that end vision is really important. Uh, But it's not just Paul himself. He doesn't just have a vision for himself. He actually wants the church to have a vision about who God wants them to be as well. Uh, I wondered if you noticed at the start of that Bible reading that Leah read for us. This is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. Uh, He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I mean, there's an interesting phrase, isn't it? What on earth does that mean? The eyes of your heart. I I just have this mental picture of... (laughs) you know, a cardiac muscle with two eyes and a little smile or something. But, you know, it's, it's really, Paul's praying, I want you to have a, a, a vision, a, a picture of who God wants you to be. So what does he pray? In order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul's prayer is that they would be able to see their future hope with spiritual eyes, that they'd be able to see the riches of a glorious inheritance that's in heaven. With Jesus, no more pain or frustration or sickness, rich and full and wonderful. It's easy to lose sight of that future certainty uh, when we're in the mess of this life, isn't it? When we're surrounded by noise and busyness. But Paul's prayer is that this church would have that vision about their future. Well, those are some reasons uh, why we should have a vision. Now we're going to spend a few moments actually thinking about this vision that our, our church leadership has, has come up with, a church through which God is transforming his people and his world. I guess the big word in that 
vision is the word transform. Uh, The idea that God is at work changing things. He's not content with how things are now. He is constantly shaping and influencing and guiding history, people, institutions, situations. God is at work to move things somewhere. Many of Jesus' parables about the kingdom of God are about change. Uh, The kingdom of God is like a man who plants seeds, says Jesus, and the seeds grow until the grain is ripe and then it's harvested. Uh, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that starts very small but then grows big. Uh, The kingdom of God is like a wedding banquet. Uh, This is a a great picture, Luke chapter 14. Uh, Or the preparation for a wedding banquet. It's not full yet. There's a few guests there, but there's lots of space. And so the master sends his servants out to invite in the poor and the crippled and the the blind and the lame. And the purpose of those invitations, verse 23, is so that the house will be full. Now that's what God wants. It's not full at the moment. His, His kingdom, the people who know him, it's not full yet. But he wants to work to change and transform so that the house is full. And notice that it's not just God doing all of this stuff. There's a responsibility for us to work with him in that. Uh, In that parable of the wedding banquet, the master doesn't do it himself. He sends his servants out uh, with his invitation. Now that's us. That's our job in the world, to be inviting people in to join in his celebration. We're expected to take that responsibility seriously. We're expected to be faithful in serving the Master. Uh, The parable of the talents in Matthew 25 uh, is about a a Master who gives talents, which was originally a measure of money, a number of coins. Uh, He gives these coins to three servants and then he goes away. And they have a responsibility to use that money, to use what they've been given to grow it. Uh, to invest it, to put it to work, to produce a return, uh, to change it, to transform it. Now, in the story, two servants do that and they earn their master's approval. But one servant, he does nothing with it. He returns it exactly the same way he received it. He, He stuck it in a hole in the ground, he kept it safe, but he did nothing with it. Nothing changed. There was no transformation. And the master calls him wicked and lazy. And in the end, he loses his talent and he's thrown out into the darkness. It's a story about God's desire is transformation and change and growth and development and that we should want those same things as well. We should be part of God's plan to change things. We should have the same desire. We should be looking for how we can be growing and developing things. We should feel unsettled if our personal, if our Christian life is the same, if our church stays the same. In fact, as I've been thinking about this process our church has been going through, um, one of the main things that motivated me personally was this parable that uh, I don't want to get to the end of my life and I say to God, well... Uh, Here's the church that I've been looking after for X number of years and it's exactly the same as when I received it. You know, I think, oh, 
I don't want to be that servant. We should be looking to grow and develop. We should feel unsettled with our lives or our church if things are the same. It's easier to keep things the same, isn't it? It takes energy to move from one place to something else. But these verses, um, I've just given you a selection, they're about teaching that God is at work transforming his world and he calls us to be part of that as well. Now, I don't just mean you should change for the sake of changing, uh, but we should be changing according to God's plans and God's priorities. Uh, We should be changing uh, in a way that is energised and inspired and guided by what God's vision is for the future, where God wants world history to be heading. Change that is aimed at achieving God's agenda and God's vision. You know, some Christians think that the church, the Christian life, is about maintaining the status quo. They call it faithfulness and steadfastness. Never change anything. Never change the way you do things. Never change words or songs or tunes or methods. And so some churches look like they did 100 years ago and nothing's changed. But God's agenda is about transformation. Now I recognise for some people change is easy. As we talk about changing things around here, for some people that really excites them. And they think, fantastic, I'm all all for change. It makes me energised. But for other people I recognise it's terrifying. Change is terrifying for some people. It's actually part of your personality really, how comfortable you are with change. Uh, it's, it's, It's pretty much how we're wired. But, but that's not an excuse. Uh, if, even if we're really uncomfortable with change, we've got a responsibility. If God is saying, here's where I want the world to head, for us to be partnering with him. He wants to work with us to transform his world. And this parable of the talents is teaching us that if we refuse to be part of that change process, whether because we're scared or because... We think tradition is very important or because we're lazy then we're just being disobedient and we risk the master's rebuke you wicked lazy servant and i don't know about you but i don't want that to be mine i don't want that i don't want that to be me so that's a little bit about change in general Uh, let's think a little bit more about specifically what God wants to be changing or transforming his world into. What's the end result? Let's get a bit clear here. And how will he go about changing his world? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 is as good a place as any and uh, it teaches us that God is transforming his world by firstly raising dead people to life and preparing good works for them to do. And then secondly, he's making us into one united humanity. So firstly, let's look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. He's raising us to life. Verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions. That's what the Ephesian church used to be. In fact, that's what all of us used to be. Uh, if, If you are not a Christian, then that's what you still are. Uh, Physically alive, but spiritually dead. Breathing, 
but cut off from God who is the source of life. Uh, Why are they dead in their transgressions? Well, he goes on to say, verse 2, because they've chosen instead to follow the ways of the world. Verse 3 says they satisfy their own sinful desires. Uh, And then the end of verse 3 says that means that they are objects of wrath. They are targets for God's judgement because of those choices in their lives. But that was before. God's actually transformed them. Uh, Verse 4, Paul says, uh, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. With Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. What an amazing transformation. Uh, It's far more miraculous. It was good that Nikki put up those pictures of uh, the caterpillar. the, the actual Greek word for, for transformation here is metamorpho. So, you know, it's, that's where we get metamorphosis from. Uh, but this transformation of God from death to life, it's far more miraculous than a caterpillar to a butterfly. Uh, it's far more miraculous than a seed that germinates into a seedling uh, or a flower that somehow develops into a fruit. All of those are transformations, but this is from death to life. Now, God has to do that. We can't do that ourselves because we're dead. Can you imagine paramedics turning up to someone who's had a heart attack? Uh, The person is lying there dead and the paramedics get down next to the person and they say, come on, up you get. Try a bit harder. Just take a deep breath. Come on, you can do it. It's nonsense, isn't it? They're, They're dead. That's what it's like when people say we make ourselves Christian. That it's up to you just to choose. All you need to do is try a bit harder or or live a bit of of a better life. That's not the image that's being described here, is it? You can't do that. You can't make yourself alive when you're dead. Only God can do it. How? Well, we're told that he does it together with Christ. Verse 6 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a very short sentence, but it packs a lot of theology into that. The basic idea, I think the simplest way to think about what God is doing there is it's like the idea of being a representative. Australia is, or until very recently, was playing in the Soccer World Cup in Qatar. Well, that's not actually correct, is it? When we say Australia is playing in the Soccer World Cup, we don't actually mean 25 million individuals are playing in a soccer game. We mean our representatives are playing in a soccer game. It's, you know, 20 men who are playing a game and they are our representatives and there's a sense in which we are in them. We are cheering for them. They are representing us, and so we are in the Soccer World Cup at Qatar. And it's a little bit like that with us and Jesus. God raised Jesus from the dead, returned him to heaven, and then God joined us to Jesus when we trusted Jesus. Ephesians 1 verse 13 makes that connection. It says, And you were included in Christ 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. You see, when we trust Jesus, God connects us to Jesus. He puts his spirit in us. We are in Jesus. And Jesus becomes our representative. And so what Jesus achieves, we achieve. What Jesus does, we do. Where Jesus goes, we go. And so when Jesus defeats sin and death, he does it on our behalf. When Jesus sits in heaven, he is there on our behalf. And so we too are raised to life and seated in heaven, even now, with Jesus as our representative. We experience a new life because of him. More I could say on that. We'll keep moving. Now, all of that, all that God has done so far, it's all to do with God and it's nothing to do with us. Uh, Verse 8 talks about, uh, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this, the, the, the faith is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by our works, so that no one can boast. You see, God doesn't raise us. He he doesn't save us because we've earned it, because we're better than other people, because we deserve it. There's nothing to boast about when we've been raised from death to life. But that doesn't mean there's nothing for us to do. It doesn't mean there are not works for us to do. We are not saved by our works or because of our works, but we are saved for works. Verse 10 goes on to say, For we are God's work, or God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God transforms us, he raises us from death to life, and he creates us to actually do good works that he'd planned beforehand. Now what are those good works? They're good works that are partnering with God in transforming his world. That's a whole range of things. And we're all different, so they're all sorts of different good works that God wants us to do. It may be doing what I'm doing, and as a way of life, you know, as a living, I'm telling people about Jesus. But it might be working in your particular industry and living for Jesus there and speaking for him. It might be providing good work. It might be providing practical needs for people who really needed it. It might be teaching English skills to people. It's a whole range of things. Speaking, loving, helping, challenging, guiding, supporting people. All with the goal, the end result, the vision, so that people will be trusting Jesus and be raised from death to life. That's what we're raised for. But it's not a solo task. Uh, It's actually a team sport. God has raised you to life to do good works as part of a team. That's the second way God is transforming his world. He's building us into one new humanity. Uh, From verse 11 of our reading, it, it, it describes two completely different groups of people. It describes Jews and Gentiles or non-Jews. Now, those two groups of people in the time of Paul, when this letter was written, they had nothing in common. Completely different backgrounds, cultures, ways of living. 
In fact, the Jews went out of their way to avoid Gentiles. Not only were they just different, but they were hostile to the Gentiles. But what God has done through Jesus is is to bring the Gentiles uh, who were away in the distance, a long way from God, he he brings them near. Even though they had none of the the Jews' historical advantages of prophets and and, uh, people who had God's word and law. God bridges the gap between where the Gentiles were and and he draws them to himself and he raises them to life. That's what's being described in verse 13. Uh, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Now that's not just describing 2,000 years ago, it's describing us. We were far away and we've been brought near. Which means that whatever our nationality or culture, whatever our language or interest group, if we have come to God through Jesus, then we are united with everyone else who God has done that for. Jew and Gentile are now one. Australian and Lebanese are now one. Greek and Italian are now one. We are not hostile or enemies all because of Jesus. Uh, Verse 14 and 15 goes on to say, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two one, uh, Jew and Gentile, uh, destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law. Uh, For Jew and Gentile, it was the law that separated them from one another. The Jews kept it, the Gentiles didn't. God's purpose was to create in Jesus, in himself, one new man. It's actually one new humanity out of the two. Two races, two groups of people now become one. Now that's what God is actually doing in the church. It's not physical, but God uses the image of a physical building from verse 19 to describe how how he's working to build a group of people how he's working to transform us from something that's small and immature and separated into something that's united and big and one new humanity. All joined to Jesus, all joined to one another. Verses 19 to 21. Consequently, because God has joined people everywhere to Jesus, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, you Gentiles. But you're actually fellow citizens with God's people, the Jews. You're actually members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Jesus, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. It's the image of a building project, but it's talking about people who are being joined together spiritually and emotionally and relationally. Despite our differences, preferences, languages, cultures, different ages and ways of communicating, despite different gifts and strengths, despite different ways of expressing ourselves in worship, despite different comfort levels to change, despite all of those differences, 
God is actually at work building something here. Building something in his worldwide church. Now what that means for you and for me is that we should be working to live out that unity. God is building it, but we should be working to live it out in our attitudes, in the way we love one another, join together for fellowship, make it a priority, the way we put one another first, the way we forgive, the way we forbear with one another. And church is just the beginning. Church is just part A of God's grand plan. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, uh, we are just the first step in everything being brought together under Jesus. Our church may seem small and unimportant, one of many, but our church is actually the seed that's been planted that will grow into a giant tree. Our church is the first deposit into a savings account that will produce a huge return. Our church is a window that the world can look into and see God's future of a united people under Jesus. Our vision under God is to be a church through which God is transforming his world, his people, uh, transforming his people and his world to the glory of God. Uh, May God make that happen. Let's pray. Uh, Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Uh, There is so much in it to uh, inspire us, to uh, give us a vision about a future. Uh, We pray that you would help us not just to see this, but to be motivated by it. We need the help of your spirit to live out uh, achieving this. We pray that you would give our church uh, a, a desire to be united that you give us the power to be united. Uh, We pray that you would be growing us together and building us into a a building in which you live by your spirit. Uh, What a wonderful picture that is. And we pray that you would bring it about. In Jesus' name. Amen.